at first, Tower at second, with two out. And the 2 0 pitch. High ball three, three and nothing. See if Birdie gives Balboni the green light on three and oh. Uh, I would think so. I'd like to see him take a good cut. Got a one nothing lead. All right, here's the 3 0 pitch. And he hits one and it's gone. Holy cow, on a 3 0 pitch. He hit one nine miles over that left field pitch. Bill and I were hoping he'd give him the green light. He got it. I can't believe Petro Berger would throw the fastball, Bill. <laughs> I oh. think, Bill, you mentioned earlier that's about all he's got. He's got the fastball a little slider. Yep. And uh, Bertie gave uh, Balboni the green light, and he hit that ball at least 400 feet oh. well over the fence in deep left center field. It flew over the 3 inch mark here, and that wind is blowing in just a bit from left field. Yep. You really got to hit it to get it over the fence. Balboni now 13 home runs and 46 runs batted in. Oh, man, that is awesome. Raw power there. He's being congratulated by all the Clippers on the bench, and here's Juan Espino hit back to the box. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hey, gang, it's Tim Hanlon. Indeed, how are you? This is uh, Good Seats Still Available, our curious little podcast. Uh, Each and every week, God, if you can believe it, uh, into what used to be in professional sports. I uh, can't thank you enough for finding us and uh, joining in our proceedings this week. And uh, we're going to go a little askance from our sort of main focus of top tier major league teams uh, and the leagues that they play in, uh, in the realm of forgotten uh, sports uh, into a little bit of the minor leagues in uh, in in baseball, uh, and that clip is uh, is evidence of uh, of the story that we're going to get into. And uh, don't adjust your uh, your listening device. That uh, indeed was the uh, the dulcet tones of the great Phil Rizzuto uh, and Bill White calling a baseball game on WABC Radio in 1981, July 1st, 1981. But if uh, if you've done your homework, you'll recognize that the Yankees weren't playing that day. Uh, it was in the midst of a major league strike by uh, the Baseball Players Association. Uh, and the Yankees, uh, along with all the other teams in Major League Baseball, were not playing. That game, however, that you heard uh, was that of a Columbus Clippers AAA International League game against the Charleston, West Virginia Charlies. And uh, that's the topic that we're going to be getting into this uh, this week. Uh, is the Columbus Clippers of 1981, and it is the uh, the subject of uh, a very interesting asterisk in uh, professional baseball history. Uh, our guest is David Herman, and his book is called Almost Yankees, the Summer of 81 and the Greatest Baseball Team You've Never Heard Of. Uh, the Columbus Clippers were, at the time, uh, the AAA affiliate of the New York Yankees. They were formed, the Clippers were, in 1977 as a uh, an affiliate of the Cleveland Indians. Uh, but in 1979, they became affiliated with the uh, New York Yankees. And as you'll hear in our conversation with uh, with Dave Herman in a, in a couple of seconds, uh, really were uh, established uh, by George Steinbrenner and the Yankees organization as the preeminent AAA franchise uh, in minor league baseball. Uh, and you'll hear in our discussion, uh, it was uh, almost a uh, Yankees-like organization in terms of top to bottom 
uh, management and the players and uh, and a lot of back and forth of members of both teams uh, going back and forth. Matter of fact, as you heard in that clip uh, featuring Phil Rizzuto and Bill White, uh, you're here. Uh, uh, Steve Balboni, whose uh, home run in that clip uh, was uh, memorialized not only in that broadcast, but uh, Balboni went up to play a couple of years. Actually, he had played uh, a couple of games with the Yankees prior to the uh, the break this uh, uh, this strike. Uh, summer, if you will. Uh, but Balboni went back to the Yankees for a couple of seasons and then went on to a couple of other uh, exploits with other major league teams. Uh, Juan uh, Espino uh, mentioned in that clip near the end also had uh, quite a bit of uh, playing time with uh, other uh, major league teams, including the Yankees. Uh, so indeed, so almost Yankees, those two indeed, Balboni and uh, Espino were indeed uh, full-time Yankees. Uh, but you had a whole bunch of other players uh, represented on this team uh, and and coaches that, uh, you know, never sort of made it to that sort of hallowed ground, if you will. Frank, Frank Verdi, in particular, uh, the manager of this Columbus Clippers, and successfully, by the way, uh, Verdi uh, managed this team to uh, what became its third consecutive International League championship uh, with the Clippers. But uh, Verdi never really made it uh, to uh, that next level, uh, managing uh, not either the Yankees or, frankly, any other major league team. Uh, but this is an interesting story. Uh, the 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 time of the Columbus Clippers. What a time in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, not yet sort of the uh, major league sports uh, city as it is today with the Columbus Blue Jackets of uh, of the NHL or the Columbus Crew of Major League Soccer. But the Clippers uh, really had a good uh, month and a half, almost two months of unadulterated spotlight as being basically the Yankees. Uh, minor league version, uh, and it helped fill time for a lot of major league fans looking for uh, professional baseball. And um, the Clippers are probably the best example of uh, a whole bunch of major, uh, minor league teams, excuse me, uh, kind of getting some uh, some very uh, white hot spotlights uh, on them as uh, fans of baseball were looking for the national pastime to uh, to replace what was uh, a dormant uh, Major League uh, Baseball season until at least August uh, when the big uh, big time players came back. We're going to get into all of that. It's a very interesting story. It's a, it's one of obviously childhood uh, reminiscences, uh, one of Columbus, Ohio, uh, and one, frankly, of, uh, of a team uh, at the highest level of the minor leagues uh, that effectively were uh, or was Major League Baseball, if you will, uh, in replacement for uh a month and a half's worth of uh, Major League Baseball that uh, had uh, taken a, a siesta, shall we say, for various uh, issues of labor relations. And we're going to get all of that with our guest, uh, David Herman, in just a couple of seconds. And uh, it's a fun and interesting conversation. And the book's really cool, too. So we uh, we encourage you to listen to that. And uh, before we do so, however, we're going to call out uh, this week's uh, great sponsor. And those are our friends at Streaker Sports at StreakerSports.com. And uh, we've got a promo code for you when you go to streakersports.com, and that's good seats. And you're going to get 10% off all of your purchases uh, when you go to streakersports.com. They call themselves Streaker Sports, does the purveyor of sports culture. And there's a whole bunch uh, of great stuff there. But uh, one area that we encourage you to take a look at is their defunct leagues section. Uh, and uh, you'll find that in their little special collections uh, quadrant there on the website, streakersports.com. And they've got some really cool shirts that are devoted to uh, various teams uh, in the leagues that we love to focus on here. The major indoor lacrosse league being one of them, 
uh, the World Hockey Association being another. Uh, the USFL, that great football league that we spent a couple of episodes on, they're represented uh, in uh, in full regalia here at StreakerSports.com, as well as the ABA, the Old American Basketball Association. And that's just a, a, a slice of what you're going to find uh, at Streaker Sports, the purveyors of sports culture. But we love those areas in particular. And if you find one of those great shirts, and they're tremendously crafted and, and created, and they're well-priced. But look, you know, they're going to get even better pricing because you're you're a fan of this show. Why not take advantage of that by using the promo code GOODSEATS at StreakerSports.com and you're going to get 10% off all of your purchases, whether it's in the defunct leagues section of the site or anywhere else for that matter at StreakerSports.com. Use that promo code GOODSEATS and get, courtesy of us, 10% off all of your purchases. We thank Streaker Sports for their sponsorship of the show, and we thank you for giving them a try. And, of course, we thank you for giving a listen to our great conversation with David Herman and, and their great uh, story about uh, the Columbus Clippers of 1981, the story about them, the almost Yankees. Enjoy. Did you grow up in Columbus? Is that sort of where the genesis of the, the story originates? Um, I partially did. I was born in the South Bay in California. My dad was a hospital administrator. Um, he, um, my parents had roots in the Midwest. My mom uh, grew up on, in rural Indiana listening to Chicago Cubs games on the radio in the barn. My dad was from Chicago, and uh, we had a chance to, um, they had a chance to bring the family back closer to some of our other family there, and my dad got a, a hospital administrator job in Columbus. So when I was five years old, we left and uh, moved to Columbus, Ohio, and I was there for uh, five obviously very formative years, which left an impression on me. And one of the subplots of this book is is that um, I, you know, really got into baseball. I mean, I just went crazy for this team at, at age 11. And then we moved away in the middle of the pennant race. We left. Um, we moved uh, back to California. And um, so I had, uh, you know, really for a long time, little to no idea of, you know, well, whatever happened to this team and these players. Um, some of them went on to major league careers, and I, I knew something of them. And I think a couple years later, I you know went to the library and looked in a reference book. But I mean, I was just a kid. I wasn't very savvy. I you know I couldn't just flip up the laptop in 1981 and, and check and see how they were doing. So um, there's a big part of this book that's that's kind of unfinished business. You know, whatever happened to my childhood heroes? So that's the that's the Columbus angle from when I was five to when I was 11. Um, is is when I was there and and uh, really sort of uh, always had a special place in my heart. All right. Well, let's set the scene. So so the the time uh, we're talking about and and the the focus of 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 your writing is is the 1981 season, which is interesting on a number of different levels. But before we kind of jump into sort of the the blow by blow by blow, he says uh, of that, mm -hmm. maybe you can kind of set the table, maybe not only for the Clippers story and and, and its uh, intrigue, but kind of maybe a little bit of uh, your recollections of Columbus, Ohio at that time. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, you know, uh, I'm originally from the northern New Jersey, uh, metropolitan New York area. I live in Chicago now for many years. Uh, but I remember mm -hmm. uh, as a huge soccer fan, I remember this team called the Columbus Magic of yep. the American mm -hmm. Soccer League, which I think uh, a couple of years prior to this uh, story was uh, a co-tenant of uh, – of the stadium in which the Clippers were playing. So maybe you can give us a little bit of a sense of sort of what was uh, the Columbus Clippers and or Columbus, Ohio like 
uh, in this sort of late 70s, early 80s uh, scene set, I guess, before we get into the story. Very different than it is now. Um, I feel like Columbus and, you know, I was just a kid, but my memory of Columbus is that it was a little bit more of sort of a, a sleepy town, um, but it was starting to, um, it was on the move uh, in the early 80s, um, you know, and as I mentioned in the book, you know, the Clippers were, were sort of a part of that. Um, they had had a, um, a minor league team uh, for many, many, well, a whole series of minor league teams for many years that had moved away after 1970. And you had this sort of decaying stadium that sort of um, felt like it, you know, it was just sort of sitting there and weeds were popping up in the outfield and it was sort of breaking down and unused. And um, you um, sort of had, there's sort of a metaphor there. Um, you know, for things that maybe Columbus wasn't at the time. I mean, it wasn't, um, you know, I mean, it wasn't the biggest city in Ohio at the time. And there was maybe um, sort of a second fiddle feel at times, I would say. Um, you know, people very proud to live there, but, um, you know, it was really just about Ohio State football. So, um, you know, but the area was sort of on the move at the time. And uh, the Clippers had this um, still relatively new um, redone stadium. And, uh, um, you know, since then, um, you know, Columbus has exploded. It's, um, you know, the, the arena district and downtown is, is just really, really nice. It's been really fun for me. I've been back multiple times. The new ballpark is terrific. And uh, Columbus is, has really grown. I mean, you've got the Blue Jackets there now. Obviously, Ohio State football is, is still a really huge deal. Um, you know, the Clippers have, have played in, in you know, national title games for the minor leagues. So it's definitely been, uh, definitely been on the move and has come a long way since late 70s, early 80s, I would say. Yeah, and the Columbus crew have, uh, has uh, defended themselves uh, from uh, being moved uh, almost in the dark mm-hmm. night by Major League Soccer. So uh, there's uh, some feistiness there, too, which I think is uh which is good because it, it really it helps cement uh, the sort of the you know major league uh, uh desire and status of, of Columbus as its own uh supportive uh, uh you know a metropolitan area for for pro sports scenes so so maybe you could describe sort of this this stadium it is I guess generally known as or was officially known as Franklin County Stadium but yes. it was also mm-hmm. called or maybe it was actually called Cooper Stadium right is that was that the name of it it was renamed Cooper Stadium, I believe, in the mid-'80s. Um, there was a really uh, interesting situation that happened where it appeared, I mean, the stadium's you know, about to fall down, and um, you know, the local transit authority is, is looking at the space and thinking, wow, a bus barn would be really great there. And, um, you, know, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's baseball in Columbus, which has this really long history, um, and, you know, a lot of, of you know, well-known players you know, certainly have come through. Um, you know, I mean, it looked like maybe it was going to end and that it was going to be really hard to ever resurrect it. And you had um, Harold Cooper um, and uh, the other county commissioners for Franklin County um, kind of come up with this plan where, um, you know, they ended up buying this kind of falling down stadium without really knowing how exactly they were going to keep going with it, because there were no laws that allowed for the county to run or own a baseball team. And again, it was a different era. And, you know, they passed these, you know, these or um, they just basically allocated all these funds to redo it. And uh, basically, um, you know what, then they had to lure a team. So um, they were able to lure uh, a team uh, that was going to be the Pirates affiliate for the first couple of years. 
and uh, they they pulled it off, and it succeeded. I think beyond even what they had hoped in terms of of revenue, and uh, you know the team. You know, Columbus instantly fell in love with with the team again. So um, Franklin County Stadium was a remake of old Jet Stadium, which you know had been there for many 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 years. Um, they really tore it kind of down to the you know to the nubbins. I mean, and, and started from scratch. It was sort of a mad scramble. Um, they were, as I understand it, the first minor league team to put down AstroTurf uh, because uh, um, you know they they weren't going to be able to have basically turf ready in time for the for this home opener. And uh, but yeah, it was um, this beautiful stadium with you know luxury boxes and um, you know good seats and um, that it was really very very state of the art at the time. Um, for you know, for the minor leagues, it was about as close to the major leagues as you could get in the minors. Another thing that they'd had to do was they'd had to figure out legally how to do this. They have a they had a young attorney named Frank Ray, who um, you know is still uh, involved with the team after all these years. Really, the only attorney the team has, has had. He had to devise a plan. He's a, a young guy. He had to devise a plan for. Um, okay, how are we going to do this legally in terms of, of operating this team? And long story short, um, they created a parks and rec board that would be um, that would be able to legally run, own, and operate the team. So you have sort of a publicly owned uh, team, and it was sort of an unusual arrangement, but but it's worked out really really well. So the the Clippers themselves were uh, were born in 1977. So as we get into the story of 1981. Uh, they're still a relatively young franchise, right? And and I think you sort of alluded to it before. They were uh, originally an affiliate of the Pirates, but they changed their affiliation to uh, a longstanding one in '79, uh, mm-hmm. just two years later, uh, with this little team known as the New York Yankees. Yes, just that that just that little team. They um, had two seasons with the Pirates. It's kind of interesting because the Clippers name, I mean, a lot of people might think, well, Yankee Clipper, I mean, that, you know, that must have been connected to their affiliation with the Yankees. It was not. They had a name the team contest and a panel picked the name Clippers. Um, my understanding is, is that it was something that, you know, they were thinking about Christopher Columbus and sort of nautical themes and, you know, Clippers and, and, and stuff like that. So it was sort of um you know, something that that came before the change in affiliation from the Pirates to the Yankees in 1979. Now, the team, the you know, Columbus loved the Clippers those first two years with the Pirates, but they didn't perform very well. Um, they were well back in the standings both of those years. Then the Yankees come along, and George Steinbrenner, who I'm sure we'll be talking about quite a bit, um, had this approach to the minor leagues where um, it was everything was top notch, um, you know, way more coaches than you would usually have, the best uniforms, the best facilities, um, and uh, you know his minor league teams. It was a very high priority for him that they be successful. However, he was addicted to signing high priced free agents and really didn't have much trust for your for your younger players. So he would stock uh, his minor league teams with, you know, major, you know, guys who had major league experience and very talented young players, but they had very, very little chance of advancing up to the Yankees. And so that's another part of the, you know, one of the themes of the book. And when I went back and studied this team as an adult, that's one of the first things I realized was, wow, these guys were, were stuck. These were talented players, guys that had been in the majors, guys that had been, you know, Marshall Brandt had been the tops minor league player of the year in 1980. 
and uh, really hardly got a serious look. I mean, it was really unbelievable. And basically, these players were just trade bait or um, just, you know, maybe short-term fill-ins in the, at the major league level, if that. But it's an interesting dynamic that was going on. A lot of guys burned out their careers uh, down in Columbus. Yeah, that's interesting because uh, you, you, you look at the, the records from 77 onward and you know, while to your point, they were, you know, uh, let's charitably saying kind of middling in the International League those first two seasons, mm-hmm. uh, perhaps because of a different approach of the Pirates. Uh, boom, 79 onward. I mean, they were they were no 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 lower than second. As a matter of fact, they were basically uh, they finished first and or became league champions for many of those years for for a bunch of those times. And, and it, it's pretty it's pretty amazing sort of to see. And, and it does feel to me, though, uh, and as we sort of segue, I guess, into to. Uh, the 81 uh, season uh, in particular, it does seem that to the outside observer, there's, um, I guess the word I'm struggling for, I guess I call it interchangeability, perhaps, uh, mm-hmm. where it feels to me that there's some element of of movement, I guess, between players and uh, especially the George Steinbrenner sort of way of of thinking, right, where, you know, he's famously known for making rash decisions uh, changing people on the fly, ask Billy Martin, for example, uh, sure. you know, and, and players too, right? And I guess knowing that you have a more, uh, shall we say, uh, strong and stocked minor league, at least AAA uh, team, uh, it almost mm-hmm. feels to me that uh, that Steinbrenner would feel a bit more cavalier about being able to sort of threaten and actually execute, not not physically, uh, people and <laughs> trades, right, to, to move people around uh, with uh, – with some level of fear and uh, and authority. Yes, and uh, you know George Steinbrenner sort of famously wanted to be feared before he wanted to be loved, for sure. Um, sure, I mean there were players that um, moved up and down a lot, especially as as uh, you know the '80s kind of of went on. There was sort of the um, idea of the Columbus shuttle. Um, you had a player like Bobby Brown, uh, who. You know, had been a co-international league MVP in 1979. George Sisler Jr., who was the Clippers GM, who you know had been around baseball his whole life, said this guy was the best minor league player he had ever seen. And um, you know, he Bobby Brown played for the Yankees and played pretty well. Hit, I believe, 260, stole a fair amount of bases in 1980. But then, you know, again, went 0 for 10 in the American League Championship Series, had a slow start in the spring, and all of a sudden, you know, he was kind of on Steinbrenner's list and and was sent back down to Columbus. Then the Yankees called him back up. Then they sent him down again. And, you know, this was a guy who had nothing left to prove, uh, you know, at, at the AAA level for sure. So you had that type of player. You had the occasional player who could just sort of force his way onto the Yankees, you know, Dave Rigetti, for example. You had other players who had all kinds of talent, but um, because of, again, Steinbrenner usually looking elsewhere to more experienced players, you know, he would give up on on players sooner. Um, Pat Tabler was a really hot prospect that the Yankees had in 1981, who ended up getting traded to the Cubs for, for Rick Rushel. And, uh, um, you know, so that was actually a real break for Tabler because, um, you know, it was going to be really, really hard for him. I mean, the Yankees had Willie Randolph, so um, it was going to be really hard for him to force his way up. Then you had other players like Marshall Brandt, who was really my main childhood hero, who put up all these huge numbers in Columbus, but just really never got much of a look. 
and so it, it definitely kind of ran the gamut uh, in terms of uh, in terms of Steinbrenner's philosophy. But but yeah, there were um, some major league veterans and talented young players that they were they were not going to make it up to the Yankees. Um, so, they were either going to go somewhere else or they were going to be done. So so if I'm a player on the '79, '80, uh, even '80, well, it's let's say the two seasons prior to what we're going to get into uh, on the Clippers, right? Am I Am I basically resigned to the fact that this I'm not going generally any further with the Yankee organization unless I'm sort of as a fill in or a replacement or or is there a real sort of hope and desire that, hey, look, you know, I'm, I'm truly on, you know, the next call bench here and, and a mm-hmm. cup of coffee and maybe more uh, with the Yankees is absolutely uh, a possibility or or is it uh you know you mentioned trade bait am i really just trying to play my best so that i can get out of this organization and be get a look uh with another team at the at the majors the yankees definitely had that reputation um there was a um a player on the 81 clippers who had started the season on the big league roster with the oakland a's you know and of course they had that amazing record breaking start that year where they won their first 11 games he was a part of that named mike patterson and Mike Patterson had, you know, one, um, my understanding from him was is that he, um, we actually didn't speak, but just in terms of doing research on him, he had always had this impression of the Yankees of, you know, wow, I just, you know, you go there and you get stuck. And, um, you know, well, that's not going to happen to me. I'm in the major leagues. Well, guess what? You know, the Yankees made a trade and Patterson came over to the Yankees organization and he was stuck and he played in 81 and played well. He played in 82, but after that he was, um, and I believe then to Japan for a little bit, but again, he um, was out of baseball after that. And this is a guy who, you know, had been on a major league roster and, and shown a lot of promise. So the reputation was definitely there that that was a tough place that, um, you know, you weren't going to have a huge chance and that it was easy to get stuck in that system. I think it varied by player in terms of how hopeful they were of, you know, I'm going to make it up to the Yankees um, or I'm just playing, you know, to be traded. Before we uh, get more into the, the, the on-field antics, so how was the, um, the team uh, embraced by Columbus and the fans? You, you had two years with the Pittsburgh relationship and then, you know, obviously this Yankees thing. I, I got to feel that, you know, the people in, in Columbus um, were starting to really get a, a taste of sort of more major league-ness, right? I mean, they had, they had that ASL mm-hmm. uh, Columbus Magic soccer team, which was sort of Division Two for that. Uh, it seems like the people were sort of newly discovering this city and, and it, run by the Yankees. It would almost feel like that this is sort of like their uh, sort of secret pro team, if you will, on the on the baseball diamond. Yeah, I mean, the, the city really embraced Columbus or the Clippers, I should say. They drew really well their first season. Um, they outpolled the Oakland A's. Now, again, that was a kind of famously poor Oakland A's team that had been gutted. But still, um, you know, and they were, I think, maybe only they were pretty close to setting a minor league record in that first season for attendance. They I think maybe they had the third or fourth best ever. And uh, people continued to come out. And, uh, you know, the fans, I mean, it, it was a, a great place to to watch a game. It was a lot of fun. There was, um, you know, people would have uh, these bells, these cowbells that they would ring. And they had fight songs that were sort of these kind of polka-inspired uh, jingles that they had come up with that they would play. And, and people would sing along and ring the cowbells. And they had a primitive uh, kind of pre-Diamond Vision type scoreboard, which was state-of-the-art at the time. And, and uh, you know, especially under the Yankees, they won. 
and it was just a, it was just a lot of fun. They had a lot of really fun promotions. There was a real fun spirit to the game. There was you know a picnic area you know beyond the the outfield fence that that people would gather in. It was just it was just a wonderful you know Midwest um, warm night thing. And uh, um, you know people you know to this day have have certainly really enjoyed the Clippers. The new park, uh, Huntington Park, is is gorgeous. It's it's just really beautiful, and they continue to. Um, you know, continue to do well. It's always had to compete with Ohio State football. And, and one of the um, kind of ironies of the season that I write about is, is that, you know, once Ohio State football started up again, um, you know, as, as great as the Clippers had been, you know, it's, it's a challenge to kind of compete for the attention. The day that the Clippers um, won or clinched the um, Governor's Cup, uh, it was sort of uh, um, side by side with Ohio State football, um, or even below it on the in the local papers, just because Ohio State football is obviously religion there. So um, yeah, definitely um, you know something that has had to compete with Ohio State football, but but that has been beloved in Columbus. All right, so let's talk about uh, the International League uh, of the late '70s and early '80s, and we'll use that sort of as the scene set for not only the season. Uh, but also sort of what's going on sort of in the background with the uh, the, the thunderclouds of, of Major League Baseball. But so describe the International League uh, and Columbus's sort of uh, a place in it. Uh, this is a triple A league, one of, I think, two at the time, right? Um, I believe so. I believe it was just the Pacific Coast League. Well, let's see. Pacific Coast League American Association also. Uh, it could be. I, I and I apologize because now now we're getting this is this is the reason why we don't spend all time in minors because it's such a, uh, uh, a convoluted kind of way. But but obviously, you know, this is these are the top tier, you know, minor league teams of yes. uh, of Major League Baseball. Right. And, and Columbus really kind of just went from middling to supreme literally in one season from. Uh, you know, starting in 1979. So maybe a little bit of a sense of sort of the momentum. And they, they were basically coming into the 1981 season. They were two-time defending league champions. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously, they were uh, humming quite well uh, as a team, uh, despite uh, sort of the Yankee sort of uh, uh, influence, if you will, and or uh, George Steinbrenner uh, brand of uh, uncertainty management. Manage- sure. Yeah, they had won the pennant the International League pennant and the Governor's Cup in 79 and 80, and they were now trying to do it for a third straight time for both, and that had had never been done before. They were a juggernaut. In 1979, the Yankees took over. Um, They won, I believe, their first 11 games. They also later in the year had a double-digit winning streak, and they just really kind of ran away with things. There was sort of a different, it was almost like they were operating at a different level than a lot of other teams. a uh, gentleman named Bill Emsley, who was a um, longtime umpire in the International League, I had some great conversations with him, and he used to talk about how, you know, he would umpire in all these different cities, and, you know, the Clippers would show up, and they would have, you know, just this whole entourage, and, you know, all these coaches, and, and it was it was like a whole different thing, and, you know, there was kind of this attitude of, oh, man, you know, well, you guys, why can't you guys just be like everybody else? Um, they were loaded, and they were loaded with talent. They had um, very talented coaches, and uh, it was, um, you know, again, there were some, some good other uh, teams in the International League. Um, there were also some that had fields that, um, well, I mean, you know, they, they just weren't quite optimal, let's put it that way. And when you put them next to Franklin County Stadium, um, you know, they, it was, yeah, it wasn't even close. 
Um, you know, I mean, places again, you know, God bless Charleston and Toledo and, and places like that. But at the time, um, you know, the fields were, were pretty rough uh, and not really, certainly not up to the same standard. But yeah, they, um, they were a, a classy, top-notch operation. There just wasn't a lot of upward mobility. Yeah, and you're talking about teams that are uh, uh, the AAA affiliates of uh, the Atlanta Braves, the Mets, the Orioles, mm-hmm. the Indians, the Red Sox, the Blue Jays, and the Twins. And yes, to, uh, to clarify, there were, uh, in 1981, uh, three uh, AAA yeah. leagues, and, and arguably a fourth if you consider the Mexican League uh, off-season as well, which is uh, operated sort of at a AAA level as well. But, you know, th- these are obviously the, the the next cups of coffee for folks within these organizations, albeit differently run, as you, as you hinted at before. Um, mm-hmm. But it seems to me that uh, a lot of the talent on the Clippers uh, were, uh, I don't want to say cemented, but certainly were expected, I guess, by this point, by 1981, to be kind of competing and or not, uh, uh, if not outright winning uh, championships, which is almost sort of an odd sort of feeling. I mean, obviously, you know, in minor leagues, you're still you're playing to win and obviously trying to play to, you know, get found by uh, the talent scouts to go to the next level. But um, to your point earlier, it seems almost like this is it almost feels like an expectation at this point that this is going to be uh, come hell or high water, a championship caliber team. Albeit a oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. A- absolutely. I mean, if you look at just a couple of the positions. So, again, I mentioned Marshall Brandt. This was a guy who tops minor league player of the year in 1980, um, you know, big home run hitter. Uh, you know, here was a guy who he didn't even have a well-defined role um, at the start because you had Steve Balboni, who'd been the MVP of the Southern League, who hit 21 home runs in his first 39 games for Nashville the year before, and Sports Illustrated came, and um, you know he was already a minor league legend. So they're both on the same team, end up trading off first base and DH. Um, you've got um, you know Dave Rigetti uh, on that team. Now he'd had a setback year in 1980, but you know he'd already pitched in the majors, and uh, you know had all kinds of of talent. Um, John Pacella was somebody who was set to um, start the season in the rotation for the Padres. Um, look, was looking to be and figured to be their number three starter. Um, just at the end of spring training, gets pulled off a bus and, and with Jerry Mumphrey and told, um, "Well, you've been traded to the Yankees." So you know, instead of you know starting the season pitching against the Giants at Candlestick Park, you know he's coming on in relief in, in Charleston, West Virginia. And this is a guy who had a full season with the Mets before all this. So um, he um, was in a fight for the last spot in the Yankee rotation with, um, you know, guys like Andy McGaffigan and, um, you know, Gene Nelson. I mean, guys, these were talented guys that, um, you know, ended up having long major league careers. And that rotation for the Clippers was really arguably better than that Padre rotation that Pacella had, had left behind. So, yeah, I mean, they were absolutely loaded. There was certainly an expectation. And then when they stumbled at the beginning of the season, they, they went nine and 11 in their first 20 games. There was a real sense of what's going on. What's, what's wrong. Um, you know, this isn't, you know, we, we don't do this in, you know, in the Yankee, <laughs> in the Yankee uh, era here in Columbus. And uh, they definitely turned it around, obviously. But but yes, expectations were very high. All right. Last general question. And we'll get we'll get into the meat of the matter. How uh, give a give a sense. And, and maybe this is through the hagiography of of of, uh, of an 11 year old or, or preteen or teenage uh, boy in the stands. Right. Uh, how frequently mm-hmm. were these players coming and going either above ground to 
the Yankees or even further below into the lower rankings of minor league baseball. Do, how stable or not would you would you characterize the Clippers roster, you know, in these uh, first Yankee owned and dominated years? Well, there was definitely uh, some movement. Um, although, you know, not as much as, as you might think, um, you know, Steve Balboni hit 33 home runs for the Clippers in this 1981 season that, that I focus on. That's just not going to really happen in the minor leagues anymore, because if you have somebody that's having a season when they're on the way to hitting 33 home runs, they're most likely going to be called up. I mean, there's a, there's a lot more, you know, kind of reaching down, I think at this point than there was then, um, you know, Situations would come up. Marshall Brandt, um, uh, very early in the season, looked like he was going to get his shot. He was called up to the Yankees because Bob Watson was hurt and they needed someone to play first. And uh, it's um, Brandt, there was this weird sort of uh, um, protest filed by a couple of other teams. There had been sort of a clerical error, and there was a rule that um, the, basically what it boiled down to was is that Brandt got to New York and, and ended up sitting in Steinbrenner's box eating prime rib, and he wasn't allowed to play because he had been called up before May 1st. Well, then they called up Balboni. They literally crossed paths in the airport in Toledo, and Balboni came up and very briefly was a star for the Yankees and um, you know, had you know, several key hits. But after just a couple of games, despite that, they moved him back down. Um, so in 81, it was still, you still had a pretty stable roster. There were tr- people that were certainly traded away. Tabler, uh, um, Mike Griffin, who was a talented pitcher. Um, but, uh, um, you know, again, in 82, I think that's when you really had a revolving door. Um, you know, that's when, you know, you had a catcher named Juan Espino going up and literally, you know, having two plate appearances and then being sent back down. And, you know, Dave Collins famously saying, which one's Espino? I, I haven't met him, you know, and he was gone already. Um, so I think that that ramped up um, as the 80s went on. But you had a, a pretty good core on the 81 roster for the Clippers, um, aside from a few guys that, that got traded. All right, so let's talk about 81, right? So uh, the Clippers, obviously, again, coming off of two championship uh, seasons uh, in their first two years of Yankee oversight, we've established that, you know, they're almost expected to sort of be at uh, a championship caliber. And it's clear that the fans are are certainly taking uh, to this, uh, shall we call it, minor league yet, uh, you know, a pro team uh, of, you know, perhaps the, you know, the crown jewel, I guess, or perhaps the, the, the highest performing of the minor league teams, really, of that era. But um, what of Major League Baseball going into 1981? Um, obviously, things were not uh, calm and uh, cool and collected. Uh, on the labor front, maybe you can set the tone for uh, what was going on at ma- uh, in Major League Baseball at the time as the season was getting going and what we kind of got into that, you know, becomes uh, the microcosm of uh, this entire story. Well, the players union and the owners had averted a strike in 1980. Um, They had uh, that season was in danger and they managed to come to an agreement to kind of, uh, you know, well, punt is not the, maybe the right word, but they had, had you know, moved the ball. Um, and uh, But what they set themselves up for was sort of a showdown over a key issue in 1981. And that issue was the idea of compensation to owners who lost free agents. Now, what the owners were trying to do was they wanted, I mean, you know, when the reserve clause died and, you know, salaries shot up and 
um, you know, the owners had basically lost the upper hand and they wanted to get it back. And one of the ways that they wanted to do this was they wanted to try to hobble the free agent market by saying, okay, that's fine. I lost this free agent. I am entitled to uh, another uh, free agent of, of at least equal talent from um, you know, that I get for my team. Now, obviously this would have had, you know, real chilling effect on the whole process. So, um, you know, that was kind of the core argument that was going on. And, uh, you know, strike deadlines were set and, you know, meetings happened and, and really didn't go anywhere. And I think that, um, you know, my impression is, is that the owners didn't really take the threat of a strike seriously. They didn't really necessarily think that it was going to happen, that the players were going to go through with it. If it did, they had a fair amount of, of strike kind of related insurance. But um, in early June, on June 12th, in the early morning hours, uh, the, the, you know, the players walked out. And, uh, you know, so you had Major League Baseball going dark and all this attention suddenly uh, given to the minor leagues, especially, especially to Columbus. But it was, it was a cloud that was uh, hanging over things, uh, you know, certainly on opening day in 1981. Um, you know, there was a kind of a festive feel. You know, the hostages were back from Iran, and, um, you know, there was a, um, you know, sort of a feeling um, in general, I think, in the country of, you know, we're going to start to bounce back a little bit from some tough times. But yes, there was this dark cloud of, of the labor strife. Yeah. And, and it seems to me that although it was the players that uh, that went out on strike, uh, it, 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 if I remember sort of correctly, uh, a lot of the blame in the press and I guess amongst most of the fans was that uh, the, the real blame was really at the the feet of the owners uh, kind of provoking this action is is that a fair and or correct assessment or is it more nuanced than that i think it might be a little bit more nuanced i think that fans were just upset and i think that they saw greed and fault on both sides um you know i think that you know with the benefit of hindsight and you look at things like the reserve clause um you know i mean it, it seems kind of kind of obvious to us you know i think most people right now that 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 had to go um you know that that was a, that, that was sort of an unfair setup um i think that people that um really followed it could sort of take either side and i certainly you know read a lot of articles and and gathered a lot of opinions on either side but um yeah i mean you know again i think that um Essentially, you know, people that really studied it realized that, that this was what was going on, that the owners were trying to sort of regain control. I mean, things were really spiraling. And on the one hand, you had owners like Steinbrenner, you know, signing, you know, all kinds of players, uh, in, you know, in the late 70s and early 80s and spending all sorts of money. Yet, on the other hand, um, you know, the owners were complaining that, you know, this isn't sustainable. And so they sort of wanted it both ways. How are the how are both the Yankees and the Clippers doing in the early months of the season, right? Because the strike itself, while threatened and or you know uh, the consternation in the press and all that, really didn't happen uh, until um, what I guess late May, early June of '81, right? So you had a mm -hmm. couple of months of play. How were how were the teams performing separately and individually uh, while all this? Uh, you know, these storm clouds were kind of coming together. The Yankees perform well. Um, you know, again, the season was sort of famously divided into the first half and the second half, 
once the strike was settled. And the Yankees um, won the American League East in the first half. And then they set up this system where, um, you know, that meant that they were automatically in in the playoffs for the 81 playoffs once they had uh, had settled the strike matter. Um, so they, they performed well, certainly. Um, they were coming off a 103-win season and, uh, you know, thinking that, you know, they had a, a great shot to win another title. And then Kansas City got them in the American League Championship Series. And, and George was, was not happy about that. Um, but, yes, they, had, uh, they were playing quite well. Um, and we can certainly talk about the second half. The Clippers, as I mentioned, um, kind of did a little bit of a face plant initially. Um, started off 9 of 11, but then... Um, they took off. They got Andre Robertson back from an injury. Bobby Brown uh, was sent back down and, um, you know, provided another big bat to an already loaded lineup. Um, the pitching had been a little bit shaky uh, earlier on in the season. Um, and, uh, you know, some of the people that they figured were going to sort of anchor things weren't performing. But that started to come together. And the Clippers just, just absolutely um, started to dominate they um, climbed out of the hole that they dug for themselves, and the day of the strike, this uh, they had a doubleheader against Tidewater, so it's your Yankees-Mets proxy war, and uh, they were just in the process of overcoming Tidewater, and for a while, um, you know, when all of a sudden they had this all this attention, I mean, they they really were dominant. So they had started slowly, but they were playing very very well um, in the um, days leading up to the strike, certainly. We're going to take a quick, brief pause, and uh, we want to remind you that our friends at Audible uh, are offering to you, our listeners, an opportunity to get a free audiobook download uh, from their amazing array of over 190,000 titles to choose from. Uh, when you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats, and that's the place to go to get your free audiobook download, courtesy of us and Audible. Uh, and uh, it's something you can cancel at any time and you can uh, keep the book for as long as your device uh, exists. And like I said before, there's just a ton of choices uh, available to you to burn up that free credit, uh, including a bunch in the realm of our forgotten sports little genre here, uh, including uh, in the realm of basketball. If you fancy yourself a fan of the old ABA, for example, uh, two great books on the great Julia Serving that might be uh, worth uh, uh, using your credit for. One, of course, is the... Uh, uh, the Rise and Rise of Julia Serving. It's called Doc, and it's written by Vincent Malazzi and uh, narrated by David Cremet. You could use your credit for that book, uh, and it's a great sort of uh, interview-style uh, 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 background on the uh, life and times of Dr. J uh, from, uh, from all sides. Uh, but if that's not good enough for you, why not try the autobiography? It's called Dr. J, the autobiography, of course. It's written by Dr. J in, in concert with uh, Carl Greenfeld. And it's narrated by Dr. J himself, Julius Irving. Uh, and uh, you could use your credit for that book, as well as, like I said, thousands and thousands of other books, not just only in basketball and basketball history, but in a whole host of genres and topics. By all means, give them a try. Why don't you? It's risk-free, for God's sakes. Audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Yes, audibletrial.com slash goodseats. That's the link. Uh, and that's where you're going to get your free audiobook download. Again, you can cancel at any time. And once you do download that book for free, and uh, after you cancel it, if you if you choose to do that, it's yours to keep. So you can enjoy uh, in perpetuity for as long as your device lives. Uh, the downloaded book free and gratis. 
courtesy of uh, yours truly here at Good Seats Still Available and our friends at Audible. Thank you, Audible. We appreciate it. And uh, we appreciate you uh, joining our conversation once again. Well, let's, let's talk about the days leading up to the strike, right? So the strike itself uh, began in earnest on June the 12th, right? So you had a couple of months of uh, of both uh, sort of seasons kind of underway and lasted all the way until the end of July uh, of 81. How does this sort of play out operationally? Uh, what happens to the Clippers in the midst of this? Obviously, the Yankees, part of uh, Major League Baseball, they're on strike. Give us a bit of a, an insight into... Uh, the mind, if it's possible, of Steinbrenner et al. And uh, what the Clippers basically uh, become in the midst of this major league strike. And by the way, I guess uh, innocently, I asked the question, where does minor league baseball fit in all this? Is there no Mm -hmm. ability and or can players, you know, the players playing in the minors have to be thinking, Geez, why are we playing when our major league compatriots are, are, you know, striking and, and organizationally it's obviously different, but um, it's got to feel like an odd feeling, right, when the big show isn't operating and, and yet you're sort of still pining away in the minors having to play. And you become, in some ways, the big show, at least the biggest show that there is at the time. There were interesting things that, that happened. I mean, for example, you know, the Yankees uh, coaches – um, you know, we're still basically, you know, under contract and, and expected to help out. Yogi Berra uh, got sent down to, to Nashville and, uh, you know, um, was wearing his Yankees uniform during games and helping coach and uh, working with a young Dong Mattingly, who was, um, you know, still playing a lot of outfield at that time and, and, you know, saying, you know, give me something to do. I need something to do and going on road trips with the team. Um, so, um, you know, you had uh, players like Dennis Worth, who had played for the Yankees in 1980, who had been sent down on a rehab assignment really just before. And that was the only way that he was going to be able to kind of play. So, um, yeah, it was sort of an interesting dichotomy uh, in terms of, um, you know, things just being so shut down at the major league level, yet just kind of continuing sort of as if, you know, nothing had changed at the minor league level. Now, you had... Um, you know, a lot of media, newspapers and, and you know, uh, you know, TV and, and everything, radio that were like, well, what are we going to do? Um, you know, how are we going to fill this gap? I mean, you know, this is such a, a huge part of, of what we do in the spring and summer. And so, um, you know, and I, I, I write about this quite a bit in the book. Um, you know, you had newspapers coming up with, with fake leagues, you know, that matched the greatest teams of all time against each other. And you had, you know, people gathering in, in parking lots outside Major League Stadiums and listening to the announcers recreate or not recreate, create fake games. Um, you know, the Padres, I think, had a 23 game winning streak that was cooked up by a local radio station. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, I think that the owners um, were you know, somewhat surprised, uh, you know, maybe when this actually happened, at least some. And uh, again, they had some insurance. They had, uh, um, you know, some efforts to kind of ride it out for a certain amount of time. Uh, players, not so much. I mean, some of them had to go out and find work uh, in those days. So, um, yeah, a lot of interesting things going on and a lot of attention, uh, you know, paid to the miners. WABC, um, the big Yankee flagship station, sent down their their crew, their varsity crew of radio announcers, Phil Rizzuto, Fran Healy, Frank Messer, and Bill White, 
And these guys were going around the International League broadcasting Clippers games, sometimes sitting at open-air tables, uh, you know, in the stands behind home plate. So, um, you know, it was, it was a very interesting time, um, you know, in, in people's efforts to try and kind of get by, certainly. So so explain the Clippers then in, in, in the midst of all that, because it seems like, uh, and I would argue is part of the thesis of your, of your book here, is that they, perhaps among just about all the other sort of minor league teams out there in the country, kind of ascended to, uh, you know, perhaps the, the, the brightest of, of spotlights uh, versus all the other teams. Was it maybe also because of said New York City media attention looking for something to fill in for the, the missing Yankees? I think so. I think, I mean, you know, that first night, and again, there's a jumping off point in the book of um, a walk-off grand slam that Andre Robertson hit to beat Tidewater. And, you know, I'm, I'm there with my dad. It's just this special night. But that, there was a real buzz that night, even before that happened. You had, you know, reporters there from the New York Times and, and Newsday and the Star-Ledger from Newark. You had ESPN. Um, ESPN was still fairly new, but they broadcast the, the second game and they broadcast other Clippers games as well. So, um, you know, the Clippers uh, and then WABC would come later. The Clippers weren't the only uh, team to get that attention, but I have a sense that um, they got as much or more than any other team. And I do think that the New York market had something to do with that. Also, the fact that they um, they were, again, a you know, very dominant team at the time, for sure. Well, let's talk about some of those Clippers players that were uh, arguably enjoying some of this newfound spotlight, uh, maybe a little bit earlier and or oddly than they were maybe expecting uh, in the sort of the traditional. Mm-hmm. Realm. I mean, you're talking about I mean, and you in your in your book on the cover, you've got uh, some of some very famous major league players and managers uh, in the process. I mean, we're talking about people like Dave Rigetti and, and Buck Showalter and Steve Balboni. You mentioned mm-hmm. earlier, Frank Verdi, Marshall Brandt, uh, Andre Roberts. I mean, you've got. There's some amazing talent, again, through the hindsight of history. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe you can oh, get a mm-hmm. bit of a sense of some of these players and, and sort of how they took to this newfound spotlight. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, they, um, I think, for, for the most part, definitely thought it was a really, really cool opportunity. Um, the Clippers had a player named Tucker Ashford, who was a very, very talented AAA uh, level player. And, uh, you know, he called up his parents and said, I'm, you know, I'm going to be on national TV. Now, ESPN was, you know, not as, as, you know, kind of everywhere back then, although it was national. So his parents would drive up the road in Tennessee um, to a, a hotel that had it just so they could watch him play on TV. And, uh, um, you know, it was it was a real kind of thrill. I mean, there was definitely a sense of, you know, this is a chance for some exposure um, that, uh, um, you know, we're not usually going to get, not just because we're in the minor leagues, but also because we're sort of buried in the minor leagues in this system. Um, you had a, a young pitcher named Steve Taylor, who'd been a first round draft pick. He'd been pitching at double a, the Clippers had a real, uh, kind of shortage of pitchers for a while at this time of the season. And Steve Taylor was called up from double a, he was supposed to pitch um, the following day on the Saturday, the second day of the strike. He drives, I, I don't know, 400 miles or whatever up from, from Nashville. And the Clippers starter in the second game of the doubleheader that night, Paul Mitchell, um, you know, his arm tightens up. And, and all of a sudden, Steve Taylor, who'd been in, in Nashville at A earlier in the day, is pitching on national television. Um, against Tidewater. So, um, you know, there were a lot of stories like that. And, um, you know, the season war, um, or the, as the strike wore on, 
Um, you know, you had, you know, the WABC crews around, you had ESPN around, there were sometimes other networks that, um, you know, would broadcast, I believe WTBS did some Richmond Braves games. Um, you know, there's a story in the book about, you know, Herb Score being uh, the new voice of the Charleston Charlies, you know, down from the Cleveland Indians. So the players, I think, did enjoy the exposure. And a lot of them responded really, really well. And the Clippers were, were very dominant during that time. Steve Balboni, during this time, hit 10 home runs in half a month. Uh, he and, and not just home runs, but just blasts. I mean, it was, it was really fun to, to see. Um, you know, again, this was a, kind of an alternative for people who, um, you know, didn't have the majors that, you know, they could tune in ESPN or, you know, if they were in the Yankees radio network, maybe WABC or their local station, and they could listen to people like Steve Balboni hitting these monster home runs. In terms of some of the other players, Marshall Brandt um, had, had had sort of an up and down season, but he really started to turn it on. Rigetti had been called up by that point and was on his way to an American League Rookie of the Year award and, and pitching in the World Series. Uh, Andre Robertson was just a, an amazing defensive shortstop who was also hitting. So, um, you know, you had uh, you had people that were tuning in, seeing a pretty high level of baseball for sure. Uh, and and the, the city of Columbus, uh, do they sort of relish this newfound, uh, uh, shall we say, major league spotlight, too? I think so. I think um, I mean, I remember, you know, there was a, a picture in the paper of uh, a, a guy setting up an ESPN camera. Um, and I think that, you know, there was definitely some excitement about it. Um, you know, Rick Riz, who was the WBNS play-by-play guy for the Clippers in, uh, in 1981 as, as a very young guy. You know, again, I listen to him, you know, to this day because he's been doing the Seattle Mariners for, for so long. He talked about it uh, at, at length uh, on the broadcasts and, and, you know, all the attention that the Clippers were getting. And, um, you know, also in terms of the, or, the org, I think that, you know, as I, I said in the book, I mean, the phones were ringing like crazy. I mean, you know, people were calling from all over the country. And wanting to know, hey, how do I get merchandise? And, you know, I want to talk to Frank Verdi and, and tell me more about this team. And, hey, I saw you on TV and it was it was really exciting. And, um, you know, I mean, America's team is probably a little bit too strong, but um, there was definitely um, some some interest, uh, you know, increased interest in this this team. I think being on the first night of the strike and having a, you know, a couple of uh, um, thrilling wins. I mean, the second game of that doubleheader, they also won with late home runs. And so I think that, um, you know, it was definitely great exposure and uh, the players liked it and the city liked it too. So it makes for an interesting June and July, but almost as uh, it seems, as quickly as the strike began, uh, it, it comes to an end. Uh, cooler heads prevail. It certainly doesn't mm-hmm. solve longstanding standing. Uh, issues between labor uh, and, and and management, and and we see uh, evidences of of those things uh, in the future as well. I think those will always be the case as long as uh, people work for other people, uh, regardless of industry or sport. Um, but uh, maybe you can describe sort of the uh, uh, the the last days of of the of the Clippers and Major League Baseball prior to the Major League season gearing back up again. It obviously started with a a uh, delayed all-star game is sort of the reintroduction of the now second half of the season. But maybe you can describe a little bit of the sort of the last days of this sort of halo of Columbus at the top of the baseball heap. And then within, you know, a, a week or two later in early August, attention sort of packed up and left. But um, in many respects, Columbus was back to the minor leagues again in terms of perception. 
It was. And, uh, you know, that is sort of one of the, the themes is, um, you know, there are a lot of sub themes in the book about perseverance and, you know, going all in, even if you're not making it to the majors and even if the ESPN cameras aren't there. And the Clippers started to cool a little bit as the strike was kind of winding up. And uh, they, um, you know, again, WABC, uh, Adler Communications had pulled the plug. So the attention was, some of the attention was already starting to, to fade a little bit. And then the strike itself was resolved. And the way that that impacted some of the Clippers was, you know, they, there were some of them that suddenly, you know, had a role in terms of getting the big league club ready to start the season again. So, uh, you know, George Frazier, who went on to a long major league career, who joined the Clippers that year, um, and Bill Castro, who had pitched for the Yankees that year and, and then been sent down, um, were called up to, um, you know, pitch in, in simulated games to try to, um, you know, help the Yankees get back in, in shape, uh, you know, for the season starting up again. Frazier um, earned himself a spot. Um, you know, he came, uh, he was on in a difficult situation, bases loaded, and he struck out uh, Reggie Jackson and uh, Dave Winfield. And, you know, getting out of the shower, they're telling him, you know, just, just stay here. <laughs> you're going you're gonna to go ahead and, and stay with us. So he had an advantage in that, you know, he was in, in, in playing shape. I mean, he was in midseason form, yet, you know, he had this chance to, um, you know, have this exposure with, you know, pitching against the Yankees, and that helped him to land a role, and that was the beginning of a long major league career for him. So, um, yeah, you had kind of Ohio State football starting to, you know, be talked about even more as that season approached. You had the end of the strike and they would still get decent crowds. But um, there was, I think, a, a shift. And, uh, um, you know, it wasn't there wasn't quite the same buzz as there was. However, they also found themselves back in a pennant race because Richmond, the Atlanta Braves AAA team, won 20 of 24 games while the Clippers were starting to struggle a little bit. And all of a sudden they're within a few games of first place and uh, Richmond came in for a series. There was some bad blood between the teams and, and, you know, games like that would still draw big crowds. And, and there was definitely an electricity for that, but you had a lot, you had um, more things to compete with and you had less of the uh, built in attention from the strike for sure. Yeah, and they went up to win their their third league championship. So, and frankly, that was actually the end of uh, of their uh, little championship uh, run there. So it didn't seem like uh, they were affected uh, adversely uh, on the field. But I got to think though, and you you allude to some of this in, in the book that that some of the players with this um, newfound sort of spotlight and national attention, uh, I don't want to say might have gotten caught up in it, but they certainly. I guess they there's a bit of angst and uh, sad feeling in that uh, you get all this sort of exposure and and you wonder you know are you now good enough to sort of get to that next level to get into the Yankee uh, top team uh, and yet you know here you are reminded come early August that you're still in the in the minor leagues and you know some of the players that we talked about right certainly went on to uh, some substantial major league uh, careers but but quite a few others this was you know really this was their taste in the limelight they never really did get to that show yeah. uh and uh so maybe you can kind of describe a bit of the, the i got i call the dichotomy of 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 sort of uh the players of this team uh in 81 really sort of thrust into some some major spotlight uh some of whom continued along their way into the process of major league baseball and frankly, some of them kind of never really did. And this was kind of like their biggest uh, 
their biggest career achievement or uh, uh, adoration, I guess, uh, in their careers. Yeah. I mean, for a lot of players, this was it. Um, and for Frank Verdi, the manager, Frank Verdi, um, you know, as I write about in the book, had had a, a Moonlight Graham type moment, you know, in the majors back in 1953 with the Yankees. And now, just like the players, I mean, he wanted to get to back to the majors, too. Um, and, you know, he used to talk about how, I mean, I think there was a sense that, you know, he probably had missed his chance, although he really had hoped to maybe be called up, um, you know, by the Yankees and, and be made a coach or a you know, bench coach or something like that. But, um, you know, he used to talk about how, you know, he'd look around this, this beautiful, you know, AAA stadium in Columbus and, you know, all the, you know, great success of the team. And he would say, you know, this is my major leagues. And, um, you know, I think that it's interesting that different players um, sort of responded in different ways. I mean, the team played great for the most part during all this attention during the strike. But you had a player named Wayne Herrer, who was an um, outfielder, usually center fielder, left field, hit leadoff a lot for the Clippers, who actually was struggling with injuries. And he gets this chance to be in the national spotlight, and he's struggling. Um, this is a guy who hit 350 for Pawtucket in, in um, 1977 and won the International League batting title, and the Red Sox didn't even invite him to spring training. Um, you know, again, not a, not a guy with a lot of power. Um, you know, so he's, you know, basically settled in. I mean, this is it. You know, I mean, after the cameras had packed up and WABC wasn't there and there was this, you know, different kind of shift, he played maybe the best baseball of his career. Um, during this key showdown series with Richmond, you know, he delivered a, a game winning hit. He um, robbed a couple of guys of hits um, and it was, it was an intense thing. And um, you know, that sort of continued for the rest of the season. So um, part of um, sort of the subplot of the book is, is this idea of, um, you know, being a hero, even in the minor leagues and, and, you know, going all out, even in the minor leagues, even if you're not going anywhere further. Um, so, you know, that, um, you know, is, is sort of a, um, you know, for me, a, a poignant thing. I mean, you know, I think that, that Wayne, you know, sort of knew that, uh, you know, this was kind of the end of the line. Other players like Dave Coleman, uh, who, you know, had a, a heroic moment later on in, in the, in the season knew that this was the end of the line and, you know, they were, um, they were tired and, uh, you know, they would do things like, you know, win, you know, to clinch a spot in the final series and then have to turn right around and start that series the next day. And, uh, you know, but still managing to hold it together and, and play some of the best baseball they'd ever played. Um, you know, that's that's an inspiring thing to me. The Clippers continued to do quite well uh, once the uh, the major league season started back up again. But interestingly, after having won what became the sort of first half of the uh, of the season in the, in their in the American League East, the Yankees, charitably they were middling that second half of the season now they went on yeah. to go to the world series and they lost to the dodgers in six games uh, so they did get it back together again but you i mean it didn't seem like the yankees were like back to old times after the strike had ended and you wonder i wonder at least if uh if there would have been more or could have been more i don't know uh replacements uh from columbus given how well they were doing versus say the yankees who were not yeah, I think so. I mean, for, I, I think there was a real question about, you know, the Yankees already had a playoff spot. The way that they had set up this um, 
you know, kind of post-strike deal was is that the winners of um, the divisions would square off if they were different between the first half and the second half. The Yankees had won, so they were already in. So, you know, perhaps there was some question around motivation. Um, you know, George Steinbrenner was, you know, definitely doing a lot of, of, of meddling. He was sort of tormenting, you know, Gene Michael, uh, you know, who was the, the manager at the time and fired him um, later on in the 81 season and brought Bob Lemon back. And uh, yeah, I mean, they were, I believe, 26 and 27 in the second half, but still had this um, playoff spot wrapped up. Now, they did bring up George Frazier, um, you know, who had pitched very, very well for the Clippers. So they did bring him up. Dave Wehrmeister was briefly up um, for them. Uh, he was a, a guy who sort of emerged as the staff ace for the Clippers. So they, they did some of that, but, um, you know, they remember also, you know, George Steinbrenner was not one to trust these younger, not proven major leaguers. And he was pretty set on, on the lineup that he had. Um, Andre Robertson um, was brought up for the stretch run after Bucky Dent got hurt. That was it, Andre Robertson was sort of the, you know, Gibraltar for the, for the Clippers and, you know, defensively so strong and, and having a good season hitting the ball. So it was sort of a, a tough thing for them when he got called up right before the, um, the Governor's Cup playoffs started. So there, there were some Clippers that came up, but, um, you know, certainly, uh, you know, there were others that in most cases would have at least gotten more of a look that in a Steinbrenner organization just, just weren't going to. And by the way, you Baltimore Orioles fans that were listening, I don't even get started on how you got screwed in 81 for not making uh, the, uh, the playoffs, having uh, uh, had the second best record uh, in the league, and yet the Brewers and the Yankees besting you to get into there. So there's a, there's an argument to be made there. So let me ask yeah, you. Yeah, well, and, and then the Reds, too. I mean, the Reds had the best overall record in baseball for the combined two, and yep. they didn't make the, they didn't win either half, and they didn't make the playoffs either. So it was definitely a flawed solution. No, and it was a crazy season. And obviously, there's there's lots of other intrigue to that that entire story and saga of 81. But this is, you know, this is a very interesting one. And, and having grown up in the New York area, been a Yankees fan, uh, you know, since childhood and, and sort of seeing this is a very interesting uh, it almost feels if you are a Yankees fan, right? This was almost like a replacement season in between the two seasons uh, mm-hmm. featuring this team called the Columbus Clippers. What? So what is the aftermath of all this, right? There are a couple of, I think, sort of themes and stories that sort of come out of this. I mean, certainly one, I'll, I'll give you a hint here, right, is that this uh, tension between uh, the players and ownership, I, you know, arguably may never go away. I think this is a sports thing and perhaps even more so given – just how much money now is is part of the the sports dynamic, even since 1981, for sure. Are some of the issues around that strike uh, are they resolved, or or will they forever be debated, and or worse, uh, subject to more work stoppages and, and interruptions? Do you think going forward from all this? Yeah, I mean, I don't know that it ever really ends. I think that um, you know, again, they they came up with this you know sort of agreement to resume baseball during 1981 that involved, you know, all these, you know, complicated um, protections for players and drafts and and things. And um, that, uh, you know, it was basically scrapped a few years later and and sort of, you know, streamlined a little bit, but, you know, nobody was, was really happy with it. Um, You know, again, in recent years, um, I guess you've, you know, you had relative labor peace for a while after 1994 um, but then, you know, you know, now you have a situation where, 
Um, you know, you've got some incredibly talented. I mean, that's been the story of this. I mean, now the season's underway, but I mean, the story of this off season was is that you had, you know, Bryce Harper and Manny Machado and, um, you know, guys still that aren't signed. And, you know, it almost feels like, you know, the owners have found a way to, you know, collude without colluding. And, um, you know, that, you know, with the advances of the, the sabermetrics and, you know, some of these players um, are just, they're just not being signed. And it's not good for the sport, you know, in my opinion. And uh, we'll kind of see. Um, but that seems to be the trend these days that um, you, you also have teams that, um, I mean, when I was a kid, you know, I, it just seemed like, um, you know, even if things maybe weren't looking great for your season and, and you know, we moved to California and I, I became a big San Francisco Giants fan um, and, and, and suffered through some rough seasons for a <laughs> while there in the, in the early uh, 80s before um, they started to, to be more successful. But there just always seemed to be hope, um, you know, at the beginning of a new season for a major league team. I mean, they just now it seems like there are teams that are sort of writing it off in a way, you know, before you really even get going, um, you know, trying to do maybe what the Astros did. And that's tough. Um, you know, right now, I mean, as a, as somebody who follows the, the San Francisco giants and the Seattle Mariners, I mean, look what the Mariners did this past year. Um, I mean, you know, they really offloaded a lot of guys and I think they're going to offload even more. Um, you know, I, my son is, you know, a really budding sports fan and I really want to, you know, I really am hoping that there's a winning team on the field to kind of capture his imagination the same way that the Clippers captured mine. But I don't know that that's going to happen anytime soon. Um, you know, the Mariners are off to a good start, but um, you know, so, so yeah, I mean, I feel like um, the issues have continued and that it's, it's maybe doing even more damage to the sport than people realize, uh, at least in some markets. Well, make no mistake. It's big business, big businesses. Right. And mm -hmm. and uh, many of those uh, uh, business like decisions and valuations and money flows and, and real estate. Right. Which has really become almost sort of the twin. I want to say evil, but uh, uh, component right of revenue streams and all that kind of stuff to that of the brand and the and the ticket sales and the and the media revenue. Right. You know, makes uh, for not only interesting times, but also perhaps you could make the argument kind of gets in the way of some of the purity of why sports are played in the first place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. And, you know, again, maybe this is something that every generation says, but you know, it just, it just feels different. <laughs> you know I mean? And uh, part of this book, um, what I wanted to do was I wanted to write about, you know, baseball and what felt to me at least like a more pure form. And, um, it, this book um, helped me to get more in touch with, you know, back in touch with my love of the sport, why I fell in love with the sport in the first place. And I hope that people that read it, um, you know, there'll be a, a level of nostalgia in there and love for the game. You know, I mean, this, this stories about, um, you know, trying to sneak in another inning on the little radio on a, a warm summer night and, you know, parents telling me to go to bed and, and, you know, they leave and I get under my covers and I, I quietly click the, click the radio back on because I just, I can't not listen. <laughs> you know, I mean, I've got to hear how it turns out. Um, you know, that is something that I think, you know, that a lot of us miss, you know, that, that just sort of just love and passion for the game. I mean, some of it's, it's youth, but, um, you know, life gets in the way sometimes and you get busy and, um, you know, it's, it's sometimes hard, you know, the big money gets involved and, uh, it's hard to enjoy the game. I think 
um, sometimes uh, as much as, as back then. And, and I wanted to kind of write about that, how a team can just grab you when you're that age and the stakes can seem so high and, uh, you know, you just you kind of live and die by it. All right, I got two last questions for you, and I appreciate your uh, your time thus far. So you interviewed a ton of players, actually, just about all the players, right, and managers and, uh, uh, about this process. Right? I just want to get a sense of how they all felt about all this. Was it was it warm and fuzzy and nostalgic, or were some kind of little you know bitter or put off by the fact that they kind of never made it to the next level? Or I'm just curious as sort of the general themes that you got from the actual participants in all of this. Most of, and I did manage to track down, I want to say something like 29 of the 37 players that had been on the roster that year. Um, For most of them, they were great. Um, You know, they were willing to talk about it. Um, You know, it was a winning season and there were a lot of good memories. I think it was a good group of guys. I know it was a good group of guys. And, uh, you know, so, yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of them really enjoyed the walk down memory lane. Um, now, there were some guys that I either couldn't find, despite my best efforts, or who I'm pretty sure I did find, you know, in terms of leaving a message somewhere, or writing a letter, who I just never heard back from. And, you know, one of the things that I had to remember is, you know, I'm sitting up in the stands and listening to the radio and, and loving this. But, you know, for some of these guys, this was not an easy season. For some of them, it was literally their last season in professional baseball, maybe the end of a dream. Maybe they were going through some difficult things. Um, I think that... Um, it was bittersweet. I spent, um, I went down to Santa Rosa, California. I had tracked down Marshall Brandt. Now, again, this is my childhood hero, a hero in Columbus, the only Clipper ever to have his number retired. Um, you know, not even Derek Jeter has had his, his number retired for the Clippers yet, at least. And uh, yeah, he was a real hero, the kind of guy who, you know, would, would teach kids in clinics and visit them in hospitals. And, you know, as I say in the book, you know, there's that cliche about, well, you should run for mayor. Well, that was Marshall Brandt. He was a hero on and off the field in Columbus. Well, you know, I went to his house and uh, um, I talked to him on the phone some, but, and I had never met him. You know, I'd, I, maybe I was too shy. I guess I never went down to try and get his autograph or anything. But, you know, I knock on the door and this, you know, six foot four, six foot five, you know, silver haired guy answers. And, you know, I'm thinking, well, maybe I'll be able to talk to this guy for a couple hours and that would be great. That would be really fun. We sat down in his house and we talked for 10 hours. I mean, we had meals together. I mean, and he opened up to me a lot, not just about baseball and his career in baseball, but about life and about how while he was hitting all these home runs and um, and had hero status, that he was really being hard on himself inside and fearing that he was going to not be good enough. And that's something that I really related to. And so um, I also scared him a little bit because I remembered or had tracked down really obscure things like walk-off home runs he'd hit in spring training games in 1978. So I think I kind of freaked him out a little bit. But um, then I went back to his house and we talked for a few more hours the next day. And so, um, you know, this is a guy who, you know, again, he um, has sold cars and, and done various other things. And, you know, he's got grandkids and, you know, great guy, but he's still you know, he's, he's haunted by the fact that he only got 20 at bats in the majors. He never stuck. He never made it. He still dreams about it. And, and I, I write about that. And so it's, it's certainly been bittersweet for some of these players to talk about it. But I think, um, you know, for the most part, it's been an enjoyable thing. Again, I'm going to Columbus um, coming up here and several of the former players are coming around these events to kind of do a mini reunion. And, and it's great. I mean, you know, I'm going to go back to my old hometown and have, uh, you know, my childhood heroes there, some of them at least, um, as kind of a celebration of this. And, and that's, boy, I mean, that's, that's really a special thing. I feel very fortunate. So 
So here's my last question then is about Columbus itself, right? So we kind of hinted at it earlier on. Columbus has really kind of uh, become quite the, uh, the megalopolis. What did the Clippers uh, and what have the Clippers sort of meant to Columbus uh, in terms of its uh, major league sports status? I, you could make the argument that some of their, uh, their spotlight in the early 80s here maybe helps uh, set the tone for future uh, professional sports considerations and then landings with folks like the crew and the Blue Jackets and, and frankly, maybe some other, uh, the Columbus Destroyers and the uh, Arena Football. I mean, there it's clear that Columbus is now very much on the map of a lot of different leagues and uh, uh, and operations as uh, as supportive of uh, a professional franchise in, in many different sports now. Oh, I think the Clippers, you know, definitely have played a part in that. I think that, um, you know, they um, were... I mean, you know, Ohio State football, as I've mentioned, was was sort of, um, you know, like like certainly like the major leagues, if not more for, you know, for people in Columbus and still is. But, um, you know, it's just it was just a part of growing up um, there. And, you know, as I've done this project, I've talked to, you know, so many people that have said, you know, yeah, you know, my dad grew up there and he he loved the Clippers and he he loved going to those games. And, I, you know, he's really excited about this book. Or, um, you know, I grew up there and I remember Steve Balboni launching these home runs. And I'm very grateful to, you know, the kind of, you know, godfathers of the Clippers, you know, Harold Cooper and George Sisler and, you know, Ken Schnacke, who's been there for for many, many years and and runs the show there now for putting that product on the field. Um, You know, I share in the book about how baseball was a real friend to me that season and since. And, um, you know, a real way for me to bond with my dad. And um, so, yes, um, it's, it's been very dear to Columbus and, and, and definitely, um, you know, has paved the way for, uh, you know, teams like the crew and, and the Blue Jackets and others as well. Um, but I, I'm very grateful for it. Um, it, it came along at a, a really, you know, important time in my life and, you know, set me on a course to being a lifelong baseball fan, a sports writer, and uh, always having warm memories of, of Columbus, for sure, even though I was only there for a few years when I was a kid. You know, here I am still writing books about it. So um, a special thing for sure. All right, there it is. Thank you to Dave. And uh, that book is called Almost Yankees, The Summer of 81 and the greatest baseball team you've never heard of. Uh, it is a fun read. It's uh, very well written. It is uh, published by our friends at the uh, University of Nebraska Press. Uh, you can get it wherever good books are sold. And, and keep an eye if you're out in Seattle uh, or in Columbus. And look, I hope uh, sometime in New York as well, you Yankees fans out there, uh, if you consider yourself such, uh, you need to add this book to your uh, collective memory of the team uh, that you love and uh, and adore so much, the New York Yankees, because the Columbus Clippers story uh, of 1981, of course, as the AAA uh, farm club of the Yankees for, for many years, is absolutely part of that tableau. And uh, you owe it to yourself to get this book. So uh, by all means, do so wherever good books are found. But of course, uh, you can find a link to uh, said book when you search up episode number 109 on our great website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. And when you do so, you'll see a link to that book on Amazon. Uh, and by clicking the link there, you'll be giving us a couple of shekels. It's a, a very easy and painless way to kind of help support this show and, and uh, obviously help our authors uh, sell a couple more copies of their books, for God's sake. So by all means, go there 
uh, early and often and click uh, on that link to uh, to buy this book and all the other ones that we feature uh, on this uh, here little show, Graham. And uh, we appreciate your doing so. And we also appreciate you, you tooling around our website generally, too. Again, it's goodseatsstillavailable.com. And uh, not only are you going to find all of our old episodes uh, for you to uh, luxuriate in and enjoy, download, do whatever you want with them, for God's sakes. But you can also uh, send us some email. Uh, of course, our, our address is hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. But if you can't remember that, just click on the link and you'll be whisked away to a to an email form and you can connect to us that way. You can find all of us, all of our, he says, social media links uh, there. But uh, we can also give those to you directly now. And that's uh, Twitter. Uh, you'll find us at Good Seats Still. That's where we are on Twitter. You'll find us on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, if you're on Facebook, uh, I, I, I'll question your sanity as to, as to why you still go to Facebook. But for, for, for whatever it's worth, we'll still stick around on there for the time being. And you'll find a page devoted to us there, too, under duress, I guess. And you will also uh, find our newsletter link there. You can sign up for that there. All of that stuff and more at goodseatsstillavailable.com. We're trying to build out, and we will soon, uh, more of a merchandise and shopping area. Uh, we're going to feature some more products and services uh, in addition to uh, the ones that we feature as sponsors now. So keep checking that site early and often, will you? And uh, we'll uh, we'll hopefully delight you with some uh, fun experiences and uh, opportunities uh, in the weeks and months to come. One last thing is our friends at Podfly Productions, in, uh, in particular, of course, our good friend, our good doctor, Jerry Payne, uh, who painstakingly, wink, wink, nod, nod, puts uh, all of our collective pieces together to make the show sound somewhat tolerable. And uh, we appreciate him doing so this week and every week. And you will, too, if you want to get into the podcasting game. I'll question your sanity there, too. But if you do, uh, no better place to uh, kind of get your sea legs with great production and direction from Podfly Productions. And uh, you can find more uh, about them at podfly.net. All right. We thank you so much for listening. Take care until next week. We uh, bid you a fond adieu, and uh, we'll uh, look forward to serving you with another great episode. Coming up then, take care until then. Bye-bye.